Okay, you can open in your Bibles there to Luke chapter 22. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew there in front of you. would encourage you to try to track with us there. We took a few weeks off from the Gospel of Luke to study Matthew over Christmas and kind of see Matthew's account of the birth of Christ. And last week, kind of going into the new year, we looked at the end of Romans chapter 8 and our security in Christ, the unfailing love of Christ for His people. And so we might need to orient ourselves just a little bit to Luke chapter 22. Judas has conspired to betray Jesus, right? And then Jesus gathers His disciples together to observe the Lord's Supper or to observe the Passover, and He institutes the Lord's Supper there, pointing to a new covenant that will be made through His blood. And the disciples are still a mess. They go out and they begin to argue who's going to be greatest amongst them. And so Jesus uh, transitions then into warning the disciples that Satan desires to sift them like wheat. Remember, he was speaking to all of them and then sort of applying it particularly to Peter. Satan desired to sift them like wheat, and instead they should, they should pray right, in order to avoid temptation. But then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays, and the disciples, again, are found unfaithful. They are sleeping though that is the means by which they might be strong in the midst of temptation. Judas comes with the band uh, by which he has betrayed Christ, kisses Christ to identify him, and Jesus is arrested right, and hauled off towards Jerusalem. And that sets the stage for where we are this morning in our text, the text that Nate read for us earlier. You know, Peter's Denial is where we'll look at primarily. Then we'll, we'll spend some time on those last few verses and Jesus being mocked. But this arrest, it, it, it sets the stage for what's coming with Peter. And as we think about Peter and what we've seen in Peter throughout the Gospel of Luke and in the other Gospel accounts as well, you can trace this, but there's sort of these highs and lows associated with Peter's ministry. You know, you think even of the instance where he, he's walking on water, right? What a, what a high moment for Peter. And then he begins to sink and he's actually rebuked for his doubt there, right? Or he gets called up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He gets to see the glory of Jesus unveiled. And then Peter decides it's a good time for him to, to talk. And, you know, he's interrupted by the Father who says, this is my son, listen to him. You got these highs and these Lows, you know, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, this crescendo of declaration of who Jesus is. And then it's, you know, a little while later, telling Jesus, oh, I won't let anybody harm you. And he said, he's told, get behind me, Satan. So you see these highs and lows associated with Peter's life and ministry. And I don't know that any of them compare with the low that we see in our text this morning. So we'll start there. Our first point this morning is Jesus denied in verses 54 to 62. It says, then they, they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. So Jesus has been arrested, um, and, and he's led away to the house of the high priest, right? This could be one of, one of two guys, 
right? Technically, Caiaphas was the official high priest at the time of Jesus' arrest and death, but Annas, the former high priest, he still kind of held this, this high position and influence in Israel. And, you know, that's probably particularly true because Caiaphas was his son-in-law, so there's some, some power that Annas still exercises in, in Jerusalem there. So we know from kind of looking at the other gospel accounts that Jesus actually appears before both, Annas and Caiaphas on the night of his arrest. But Luke isn't so much concerned about which high priest he goes to first and which house this is. At least initially, he's much more concerned about what's going on out in the courtyard. Right? You, you think about this, this big area where you know, many people could gather outside of this house and it was it would be you know semi open to the public where people could come and go so luke is much more interested in peter right now and his response to what is going on and he says that peter has followed jesus from afar so before we look at like these three denials that that we so often think about peter should be commended in in some way right he did at least follow jesus at some level this isn't in Luke, but John, in John's account, he's the only other disciple that even made it this far. In fact, John's probably the one that got Peter into the courtyard in the first place. So we can commend Peter at some level, but that's about the best thing we could say for him this this evening, right? Well, what happens, right? They start this fire. Right, that's that's what the text says. And when they had kindled a fire, and, and we're sort of hopping into the the middle of this narrative, we we should ask who is they who is starting the fire, right? Who is they that is gathered in in, in the courtyard there? Well, verse fifty two tells us that this group is was made up of Jewish officials, temple guards that went out to arrest Jesus, the scribes. So the, the elders of the people, influential people in Jerusalem, it's the same crowd that went out to, to, capture, Jeru- or to capture Jesus, brought him back. It's the same they that, that uh, is, has started this fire. And Peter sits down amongst them, and he decides to warm himself with the fire. Right? He, he's following along, hoping to, to figure out what will become of Jesus. Right? He's following at a distance. But the fire, unfortunately for, for Peter's sake, it not only warms him, but, but it casts a light on him. And people begin to recognize him. And so by the light of the fire, one of the servants of the high priest, a, a, a girl, probably a young girl, recognizes him. And so she's, she's staring intently at him. The, the fire is lighting up his face, and she identifies Peter, saying, this man was also with him. It's interesting that Peter was willing to fight the mob when they came to arrest Jesus, right? He's the one that drew the sword and swung it. He cut off the ear there. But So he's willing to do that. He's willing to go to war. But in the face of this social pressure, in the face of being revealed when, when, when maybe uh, you know, social ostracization is on the line, Peter, who is the rock, begins to crack. In fact, Peter denies even knowing him, saying, woman, I do not know him. 
And this is such a sad thing for Jesus to say because it is such a strong denial. Right? I do not even know Jesus. Imagine hearing someone you consider to be one of your closest friends say that about you. (laughs) I don't even know who that guy is. Right? It actually parallels the language of what, what, what they would say in the synagogue when they excommunicate somebody out of Jewish life. We no longer know you. So this is a serious denial on the part of Peter. So even though as we kind of track through these denials, there, there's some time that passes. And Luke sort of lets us know a, a little bit of time passes in each verse. But still, it's just one verse, one verse. It, they just come in really quick succession here. The second denial comes there in vo- verse 58. You know, in, putting, in, in kind of putting the other gospel accounts together and, and who, who identifies Jesus, who says uh, who points out Jesus? Right? It seems like the first girl just kept persisting. She kept persisting that this is this is one of the followers of Christ because some of the other gospel accounts say, "Well, the girl said this again." Right? But but the picture that we get in Luke is that if this girl is persisting, there's others who kind of come around and they begin to focus on Peter and they identify Peter as one of them. Right? That is one of Jesus' followers, one of his disciples. And again, Peter lies. He lies and he denies being a disciple of Christ. What a, what a stark contrast we have here in this narrative when we think about the call of Peter to follow Jesus in the first place. Right? If you remember, you know, Peter was sent out in the boat by Jesus. And eventually, Jesus demonstrates his lordship to Peter, you know, by allowing Peter to catch more fish than he did fishing all night. And he calls Peter to himself, and he tells Peter, you will become a fisher of men from this point on. He left everything and followed him. But not only that, it says that Peter fell down before Jesus and said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. He left everything to follow Christ. And now he is denying even being one of his disciples. He's wilting under the pressure. The third denial, the text says, came about an hour later. Still, another person is is persistent. He, He continually insists that Peter was with Jesus. Peter had boasted earlier that he was willing to go with Jesus to death and even to to jail. And now he is denying that he's with Jesus in any sense. So this man identifies Peter as a follower of Jesus partly because Peter's a Galilean. Matthew tells us his accent gave him away. And really, so, so, so the person being insistent would probably be assuming there's only one reason why a Galilean would be in this courtyard in the middle of the night. And that's if he's a follower of Jesus of Galilee, who has come into Jerusalem. And so this time, Peter actually plays aloof. He plays dumb. He says, I do not know what you are are talking about. Right? And if we're, you know, in our sophisticated minds, we might say, oh, what a clever way for Peter to not lie, but get out of saying what's true. 
That's not the way that's treated in this text. Right? This is the third denial of Peter, by Peter, of Jesus. In fact, in the other accounts, he swears and takes an oath that he does not know Christ. He's not associated with him in any way. So Peter had boasted, but he crumbles here. Jesus had warned Peter and the other disciples that Satan desired to sift them like wheat. He had commanded them to pray so that they would avoid temptation. They did not listen, right? They've all scattered. Peter and John have kind of followed from afar. In the case of Peter, he has now denied his Lord three times. I appreciated the quote I read this week. It says, it took only a menial maid to fell the chief of the twelve. It took only a menial maid to fell the chief of the twelve. Gone were all his high and heroic protestations to Jesus. Gone all the spurious courage from his heart and from the hand that had snatched out the sword in Gethsemane. Here stands the errant coward who is unable to confess his heavenly Lord and cringes in lying denial. So in Peter, we find a cautionary tale. When we contrast his boasting with what really played out, we do find a cautionary tale that we too should be humble, that we should have a humility about boasting about our own faithfulness. We should be careful not to think too highly of ourselves than we ought to think. If we are convinced that we are standing strong, we ought to take heed or else we might fall. Instead, our confidence ought not to be in ourselves, but in the Lord and His ability to work in us and through us, to keep us and to persevere us. It's actually the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 that results in a different kind of Peter, right? That fundamentally changes Peter. He's still imperfect. And he gets kind of caught up in the fear of man, right? He, he still fears what other people think. He's, he doesn't walk consistent with the gospel at one point in his life. He's still very imperfect. But the Peter who stands up in Acts chapter 2 and preaches the gospel and thousands of people come to know Christ is the one who's been filled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So we shouldn't look to Peter, even if, if we were to continue in the, in the book of Acts and say, oh good, Peter finally figured it out. He finally straightened himself out. No, he was empowered by the Spirit of God to remain faithful. The same Spirit that now powerfully works in us, bringing us all the way home. Right? So that's the, the lowest of the low for Peter. But in Jesus' compassion and in God's grace, he kind of reaches into the depths and plucks Peter out and restores him to even greater heights. This is not obviously where Peter's story ends, but his path to restoration begins with conviction, weeping. It begins with the crowing of a rooster. Upon hearing the rooster crow, Peter, he must have turned and maybe they were moving Jesus at this point. Who knows how they were able to see each other, but he turns and sees that Jesus is now looking at him. And the, the crowing of the rooster and the turning and seeing Jesus and those two things in conjunction, in that moment, the words of Christ flow, flood back into Peter's mind. 
You see, Jesus had just made the prophetic announcement that this would happen. Right? He just made that announcement that it would happen. And think about the words that, that Peter used in his first denial. I do not know him. I do not know him. And if you look back up there in verse 34, it's exactly what Jesus said he would say. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. We see in Jesus here that he is the prophet of all prophets, right? We see that he is infallible in his word. We'll see it even more clearly in a moment at the end of this passage we're looking at this morning, but he is completely accurate in all that he said would happen. And so Peter, as he, as he considers, as he sees Christ looking at him, as he hears the rooster crow, as he recalls the words of Christ, Peter not only sees himself clearly in this moment, that he has fallen, but he sees Christ for who he is, the true prophet of God. This is the Lord whom he has betrayed. And this crushes Peter's spirit. Right In verse 62, it simply says, And he went out, he went out and wept bitterly. It just crushes Peter. Ironically for Peter, the, the way up, right? We're talking about these highs and lows of Peter. He's, he's hit this low of denying Christ. Ironically, the way up begins with conviction and godly grief. And this leads us to sort of a surprising thought from the text that insight into your weaknesses or even insight into your sinful desires, or even exposing your sinful desires, is an expression of God's grace. Is an expression of God's grace. It can be, if you respond appropriately to these times, that when God kind of turns on the light and shines the light on the darkness in your heart, it can be the beginning of repentance. So in that sense, it is the grace of God active in your Life. It doesn't feel like grace. Right? It isn't fun, but it can be the beginning of restoration. You know, you kids might think about it this way. When your parents confront you with something, and it doesn't feel like fun, right? But if they're pointing you back to Christ, if they're pointing you back to Him, it can be an expression of His grace. It's uncomfortable, but it is God being good to you. And this is true for Peter. Because Jesus not only predicted that Peter would deny him, right? He spoke of a, a turning and a restoration that would follow. Now, you can read about this restoration in John. We're not going to go there. We're focusing on what the Gospel of Luke has. But we're, 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 I think we're right to talk about the restoration because it's part of what Jesus predicted. Look back up there in verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus not only predicted the downfall of Peter, the fall of Peter, the denial of Peter, but he, he had spoke of when you turn again. Right? And Jesus said, promise, I've prayed for you so that this sifting doesn't result in your complete apostasy, your, your complete following away. You will remain faithful to the Lord in some sense, even though you've sinned. 
So Peter's turning back to the Lord begins with weeping. It begins with grief. You might say that Peter turned from his denial, or he denied his denial. He failed here. He failed here, but God remains faithful to him. And Jesus said, you'll be restored, you'll strengthen your brothers. And that he will be used in a very powerful way amongst the disciples, and we see, even as we alluded to in the book of Acts, in preaching the gospel of Christ. So Jesus here is not headed to the cross in order to demand perfection. Right? We see the failure, we see the sin in Peter, so we know that Jesus is not headed here to demand perfection, but to pay the price even for Peter's very denial. We see the compassion and the grace of Jesus. The look that he gave Peter, you know, we're not, I don't want to, we're not told any more than that. But it must have, the way Christ has promised this restoration, the way he eventually restores Peter, it must have been mixed with grief and hope, both disappointment and compassion. Jesus does not take sin lightly, but he does restore the fallen. He intercedes on our behalf, and he comforts the repentant. What a wonderful Savior. All then, in light of Christ, who is able to say what's coming, right? The, the Son of God, light of light, God of God. We've been singing it in our services. All should fall before Him. All should worship Him in the splendor of His majesty. His goodness and His compassion and His justice and His righteousness go beyond our ability to comprehend. Yet while Peter is weeping over his denial, Jesus is not being worshipped but blasphemed, right? And that's our second point this morning. Jesus is mocked in verses 63 through 65. Now the men were holding Jesus in custody. The men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. His, one of his closest disciples betrayed him. The other disciples scattered. The religious leaders here mocking. Jesus is alone at this point. I just finished uh, reading this, this book not too long ago about an Air Force uh, combat controller named John Chapman who was uh, kind of accompanying this team that's going to land on this mountain in Afghanistan. They're going to try to save this Navy SEAL who's fallen out of a helicopter, and he's receiving heavy fire. And so, so John's helicopter lands, and, and they, just, they didn't plan the mission very well. It's like they just land in this terrible position. They're getting shot at. And so this guy runs, John, like runs up there, and he's like, killing these bad guys who are trying to kill him, just putting himself totally in the line of fire, saves his, his teammates until he eventually gets hit twice in the stomach. And the, the teammates have to retreat, right? They, they assume that he's dead because he's just kind of lying there, but they never went over there and actually checked him. And he eventually like regains consciousness. 
and he realizes he, he's all alone. And he hops on his uh, little radio, and he says, any station, any station, this is Mako 03 Charlie. And, the, and the, author, the author says this, and he waited alone in the dark. Right? And, then the, and then the author says this, it's nearly impossible for us to understand the implications of true abandonment. It's nearly impossible for us to understand the implications of true abandonment. The worst thing for a soldier is to be left on the battlefield, and that is exactly what happened to John. The reason I say that is because I, I, I think the line matters. It is nearly impossible for us to understand true abandonment. But here we find Christ completely abandoned by his disciples, by the people that should have fallen down before him and worshipped him. In fact, earlier in this evening, Jesus had said, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will all be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. He's instead in the custody of those who came to arrest him. Right? Those, again, would include the, the company that came to arrest him in the garden, the temple guards. Perhaps the scribes and chief priests are sort of scheming about how they might entrap Jesus, and these guys have him in custody. And verse 63 says that they are mocking him, and they are beating him. You know, if you're sort of trying to track with events a timeline, this is when they would put the crown of thorns on his head as well and spit on him. Luke, again, doesn't go there. But he does mention the mocking. This is ridicule. It's, it's derision. And during this, they're beating him. They're punching him with their fists, slapping him with their hands in a humiliating fashion. And if, if everything's true that we've been saying about Christ, and certainly it is, right? If Jesus is truly God who has taken on flesh, if he's never sinned but perfectly obeyed God in every way, if he, unlike us, spent every moment to the glory of the Father and not in selfish ambition and selfish service for his own gain, but for the good of others, if he loved and served those around him perfectly, if he is the one who healed and resurrected from the dead and saved, then it is absolutely right to say that there is no injustice greater than what Jesus is enduring in our text and what he will endure on the cross. In fact, we might go so far as to say all the injustices in the history of the world are not worthy to be compared with what Christ is going through. The Son of God mocked and ridiculed and beaten preparing for death. And his captors take, his, take the mockery up to another level. They blindfold Jesus, and then they would, they would hit him and mockingly say, tell us, prophesy, who is it that hits you? The sad irony in the text is that those who were beating Jesus and deriding him even as they mocked him and asked him to prophesy, they were unwittingly fulfilling the words of Jesus that he had said back in Luke chapter 18, that he would be mistreated and that he would be beaten and that he would eventually die and that he would be resurrected. As they mock him and tell him to prophesy, they are fulfilling his very words. 
In fact, we have sort of a theme that comes together then in our, our two paragraphs that we're looking at this morning. Luke clearly wants to highlight the, the, the role of Jesus as prophet. He perfectly prophesied Peter's denial and it came to pass, and so he has done with these guys. And they are fulfilling it even against their own knowledge, even though they don't have a clue. We also see the words of Jesus coming to fruition in another way that he's, he's developed throughout the gospel of Luke as he's confronted the religious leaders. He said, this is, this is how you treat the, the prophets. You abuse them and you disregard them and sometimes kill them. Jesus had confronted the religious leaders and said, the only prophet that you care about is a dead prophet. You honor the dead ones. You don't listen to the ones who are living amongst you because they they convict you with their preaching. He said all the way back in chapter 13 that he needs to go to Jerusalem because that's where prophets go to die. It was both a prediction of his own death and a way of confronting the religious leaders of Israel as those who have killed the prophets rejected them a condemnation and a prediction at once. Another text comes to mind as we think about just Luke at at, at large. uh, Jesus told a parable about a vineyard owner who would send a a servant to check on the vineyard and receive some of the produce of the vineyard because he lent it out to some tenants. And the first uh, servant is mocked and abused and kicked out. He does that two more times. And eventually the vineyard owner says, you know what I'll do? I'll send my son. My son serves as a representative of me. Surely they will respect him. And they treated him even worse than the servants. They beat him and killed him and threw him out. So here we have the beginning of the fulfillment of that. The, the, the vineyard tenants beating the son, who will eventually be put to death. The truly blind ones then in the text are the ones who are mocking Christ and asking him to prophesy because they are actually fulfilling his very words. Right, So Luke doesn't bother them to lay out and record all their, their accusations. He simply sums up the rest of their interaction this way in verse 65. And they made many other accusations against him, blaspheming him. You know that word blasphemy, it can actually just mean slander. Like sometimes it's applied to people, um, and it's just translated slander, or defame, or deride. But when applied to God, the word blasphemy brings out the seriousness of the offense, and that is certainly the meaning in our text. Jesus is the Son of God, and He is being blasphemed. It's hard. It's hard for us, you know. Even, even as I thought about the text this week, it's hard to come to grips with how far Jesus has humbled Himself. If passages like Philippians two sort of tell us that Christ humbled Himself, Luke twenty two just paints it in vivid. Here we have the Son of God, the Creator of all things, blasphemed by those very ones who bear His image. 
They were created to use their words in praise and adoration of God. And here they mock and insult him, beat him and spit on him. The truth that we all must reckon with this morning is that the blasphemy that's directed towards Christ, it's not simply the failure of a few, but the manifestation of the sinfulness of man. It's the manifestation of the sinfulness of man. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. In my soul, I'm, I'm torn as I read the text, right? Because as we look at passages where Peter's denying and these guys are beating Jesus, like I get angry for Jesus, right? I feel like Peter who took out the sword and wanted to cut somebody's head off. That, I feel that in my heart. I, I feel like Peter who said, like, no, nothing. we won't let anything happen to you, Jesus. But I'm aware that in myself, that in myself, I'm, I'm no better than these men, right? Without Christ, without Christ, and in the same set of circumstances, I'm perfectly capable of sinning the way these men sinned. So we should come to this text humbly, noting that the, the, as we walk through the, the betrayal, the arrests, the trials, the crucifixion of Jesus, the depravity of man is put on display. And we must be willing to admit that we too were once among those who were at enmity with God, who were enemies of Him. And so we deserved what Jesus is enduring and what He is about to endure. He is, he is moving towards the cross where He will pay the punishment for sin. He will pay the punishment even for blasphemers, even for those who have used their words to mock and to deride Him instead of worship Him. For the times that we've used our God-given, image-bearing capacities not to serve God, but to rebel against Him and to serve ourselves, even scorning Him in the process. He's going to pay the price for those who use their words to exalt ourselves and to slander others instead of praise His name. And here we have Jesus enduring betrayed by perhaps his closest friend, mocked by those who should have gladly received him. And he's enduring, and he's enduring alone, and he's doing it for our sake. He endured because this is why he came, to rescue sinners by his impending death and his victorious resurrection. We looked at it a couple paragraphs ago in Luke. Jesus We'll drink, if we're thinking about time from where our text is. So let's look from our time. All right. He drank the cup of the wrath of God. He laid down his life for the sheep. And this was according to the will of God. So as dark as, night, as, dark as this night is, right, this is God's plan of salvation to bring about our saving. The salvation plan of God is being worked out. The words of Christ are coming to fulfillment. He predicted this many times. He's being mistreated. He will soon be handed over to the Gentiles to be beaten further, killed, and then resurrected from the grave. All of this so that we might not be counted unrighteous, but that we might be credited with the very righteousness of Christ. So repent of your sins if you have not. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. In the face of this, 
mockery and derision. It says Jesus remained silent. He remained silent. Imagine for a moment the things that Jesus endured here. Most people who suffer at the hands of others suffer because they're helpless to to change the circumstance. They remain in the state they're in because they at least believe that they can't do anything to get out of it. And that's certainly not the case with Jesus. He, with a word, could destroy his captors. He could blind them and have the bonds fall off and walk out of there. He'd escaped capture many times. This is not, this is not the time. You can't have me now. You can have me when I get to Jerusalem. He could do anything he wanted. And so as I read the text and thought about the text, I was just struck by the phrase, the men who were holding Jesus in custody. Because ultimately they have no authority. They have no ability to hold Jesus there if he doesn't choose, willingly choose to remain there. And as they beat Jesus and they mocked him and they said, prophesy who struck you, the reality is he could have told them not only their name, he could have told them their birthdays, he could have told them what they weighed this morning and how many hairs were on their head. But he remained silent in the face of his abusers. In fact, Isaiah 53, 7 says this is exactly what the suffering servant would do. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We also have the record of Peter, who was the closest one to Jesus on this night. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. If you're a Christian this morning, it's good for us to reflect on the character of Christ here. That he is silent before his accusers. And that he is compassionate towards Peter. Jesus had said earlier in Luke that there is is even forgiveness available for those who blaspheme the Son of Man. They will be forgiven. So we see here that Christ is the one who has come to die for his enemies, for those who would blaspheme him. And with Peter, as with us, Jesus knows, he sees our sins before we even think to do them. He looks upon us, he's certainly grieved by our sin, but he's compassionate and he's faithful. He restores the fallen. He gives grace upon grace, and He leads us on gently towards our eternal home. Let's pray together. Lord God, may we in our hearts adore Christ. May we rejoice in our salvation. May you open eyes to the glory of the gospel in Christ Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.